When you're a kid, television is a daytime thing or an evening thing. But at some point, you go to bed, and the grown-ups stay up late and watch things you're just not allowed to see. In the 1970s, that forbidden thing could be boiled down into a person, Johnny Carson. He was the thing that our parents watched late at night, at least sometimes. And in the days before most families had VCRs, if you weren't up at 1130 with an earache or some other horrible affliction and you were a kid, you never saw Johnny Carson. Well, I loved Carson, but it always felt to me I was too young and, and you know, it's the the lack of wisdom, the foolishness of youth. You think, I thought, well, of course he's going to retire. He's kind of old, right? I mean, great. You know, not that I was sick of his show, but I thought, of course, you know, it doesn't seem like. Whereas, you know, and Letterman's you know, probably right around, right around the same age. So I'm sure somebody who's in their 20s now is going to think the same thing. Well, of course, Letterman's retiring. He's, you know, he's kind of old. When Carson retired in 1992, it was a huge television event. But of course, Carson is retiring. He's kind of old. It's funny how time works. Now it's 2015, and the main comedy figure of my generation, David Letterman, is the old man. And I find myself right where those fans of Johnny Carson were two decades ago, saying goodbye to an immeasurably influential performer, to an audience full of younger people who see him just as this old guy who's been on TV forever. There's no single performer who has had more influence on my sense of humor, on my appreciation for certain kinds of comedy, even my understanding about how creativity works than David Letterman. Yeah, that guy, that cranky 68-year-old guy who has been on television for more than 30 years now. That guy. This is The Incomparable, number 247 from May 2015. I'm Jason Snell. It's David Letterman's last week on the air, so let's send him off right. In the 1970s, the nation discovered a young comedian named David Letterman. If by discovered, you mean never noticed. An Indiana native, radio and TV broadcaster, David Letterman moved to L.A. in search of fame. But what he found was a community of comedians who respected him and a series of forgettable television appearances on shows like the Starland Vocal Band Show, Mary Tyler Moore's post-sitcom variety show. Robin Williams got him a guest starring gig on an episode of Mork and Mindy. Where David Letterman ultimately succeeded, though, was on The Tonight Show, where Johnny Carson took a liking to him, kept asking him back, and ultimately made him a regular guest host. NBC also had its eyes on David Letterman, but with Carson at the height of his powers, the question was, what could they do with him? So they did the logical thing. They put him on in the middle of the morning right after The Today Show. I was 15 years old in the summer of 1980 when David Letterman got his morning show, and everybody knew David Letterman had no business doing a morning show. But that was the slot that NBC had for him. And in that day of very constrained, sphinctered television programming schedules and priorities, you, you made the best with what you had. He, would, he did game shows as well. You, he was a whiz at Password and Pyramid. And whenever they could, they shoehorned him in you know, on one of, you know, whenever Johnny was taking a vacation, which was usually tomorrow. That's Aaron Barnhart, former TV critic at the Kansas City Star, and someone I met on the internet specifically because of our love of David Letterman. And what a surprise when I discovered that the other TV critic I know, Tim Goodman of The Hollywood Reporter, was also watching that unlikely David Letterman show that aired in the mornings in 1980. Oh, yeah. I just I discovered him when he had a show in the daytime. Oh, you were one of the morning show people. All right. Mm-hmm. The show that yeah. was inappropriate for morning. Yeah, it was <laughs> random. And it was like Edwin Newman was one of those. That, yeah, it was so weird back then. And I, yeah, I, I was, discovered that um, in those days. And then and then just, uh, he was like, I don't know. I mean, I'm a little more jaded now since I've been a TV critic for so long and there's been so many hosts there. But at the time when I wasn't and I was just a TV fan, I was like, okay, this guy. To me, I felt like I was watching the revolution, man. This guy, I thought this guy was great. I didn't know all the influences he had, but I did know, uh, and now, of course, I know, but how refreshing and and funny and goofy he was um, and and that you had to watch. That was great. They worked him in. Um, But 
for him to have his own platform other than an occasional television special, they had to give him something. And so he did morning television as nobody has ever done morning television. And the response to that, I mean, they canceled him, as we all knew he would, They NBC would, because the, the housewives who made up the bulk of t- daytime TV viewing in 1980 – did not get David Letterman, but the rest of us who were on summer vacation that summer, um, we flocked to this show, and when NBC announced that they were canceling him, people flocked to 30 Rock to to sit in the aisles even and pose a fire hazard, as, as Letterman famously pointed out in one of his shows, and, and, and be part of what they thought was television history. By the time Letterman's morning show went off the air, after about four months, NBC knew he had something. And the king of late night, Johnny Carson, had just signed a new contract that gave him control over what aired on NBC after his show went off the air. So NBC canceled Tom Snyder's Tomorrow Show and made space for a Carson-produced talk show hosted by David Letterman. When he came back for good on February 1st of 1982, it was already established that he would be doing the anti-Johnny Carson show. What what he had already done to morning television, he was going to do to late night television and then some. Now, making the anti-Johnny Carson show wasn't just a good idea. It was actually required. The King had spoken. And the Letterman show couldn't resemble The Tonight Show too closely. Johnny Carson also had a very strong survival instinct. And even though he would sometimes joke about, you know, he had those those jokes when his monologue was dying. He had those those saver jokes. And one of one of his more famous one was, should I just walk off now and let Letterman take over the show? Uh, uh, Johnny, despite kidding about it, knew that uh, he needed to step up his game and he needed also to protect his turf. And in 1980, when you're the king of late night, what you mostly do is protect your turf. So he dictated terms to David Letterman, who, although Dave adored Johnny, was put in some rather put put under some rather humiliating, I think, creative constraints. The the first of which was he was not allowed to have a band of more than four members, and he was not allowed to tell more than I think four jokes in his opening monologue, and several other features that Dave would not be allowed to have on his show, lest it remind anybody of The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson. I remember, I don't know what the specific contract said, but I know that there was this, I think it was a time length on the monologue. This is John Gruber, writer of Daring Fireball. With the monologue, Dave just embraced it. Like the the monologue on, I think people who are only familiar with the modern Letterman show, The Late Show, if they went back and watched some of the 80s ones with us, like me and you would be dying and just crying, laughing, and they would be like, wait a minute, that was the monologue? Like three stupid jokes, one of them which didn't make any sense at all, and then Dave would just turn and show his ass to America and walk to his desk. Uh, Like three quick jokes and be out, and it was just sort of like the way Dave's attitude was at the time made it seem as though we're legally obligated to have a monologue, but... So here's here's your stupid monologue. Joke one, joke two, joke three. Okay. The comedy of those early shows was that a bunch of people who were aware of the rules of television simply couldn't or wouldn't follow them and would acknowledge that fact explicitly. And I believe that was how they opened the morning show. They had uh, uh, Larry Bud Melman come on and say, oh, this, we, we don't know why we allowed this to happen. Please look away. This is Philip Michaels, who I've known since college, where we both said and wrote a lot of things that tried to be funny and owed a lot to the style of David Letterman. Because of Letterman, I, I you know, started watching Ernie Kovacs reruns. And again, it, even though that was a, a show that was on decades earlier, it looked like something that should not be allowed on television because they, they would just do the, 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 these ridiculous things that, 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 and, and then end them abruptly and move on to something else. And, and I, think, I think there's a certain genre of, uh, of show that appeals to that, uh, that mindset. Meryl Marco, who was his uh, girlfriend and writer on the show, said, hallelujah. I mean, we're, we're delighted to have these 
these rules and restrictions because it means we don't have to do the Johnny Carson show. It means we, we're free to go off and, and turn everything on its head. And that's exactly what happened. They may have already been heading in that direction, but Carson's edict that the Letterman show not resemble his show pushed them even further in the direction of making this absurd unshow, a talk show that was a parody of itself. Anyone who grew up understanding the rules of television, that even with comedy, it was serious business to be undertaken by professionals, would see Letterman's show and not quite understand what they were watching. The man at the desk was an affable Midwesterner in a blazer, tie, and slacks but also tennis shoes. And his show was demolishing what we all thought were the rules of American television. It was a a pretty slippery slope from four jokes, four non-topical jokes in the monologue in a small band to Paul Schaefer's rants storming out the door and and Chris Elliott coming out from behind the seats and uh, Dave putting on a suit of sponges and jumping in a giant bowl of Rice Krispies, and so on. He, he, he decided he would raid everybody else's um, uh, talk show treasure chest, uh, first and foremost, Steve Allen. Uh, but, but also, you could definitely see Jack Parr and, um, and, and of course, his hero, Regis Philbin, uh, all wound up sort of on his stage because... Uh, he was under strict orders to to, to not be Johnny, and it, and it worked out great for him. It's a weird-sounding analogy, but to me it makes a lot of sense. Is to me, Letterman is a lot like Quentin Tarantino in a way that Letterman, to me, clearly internalized all those rules of TV. Like, And he understood them specifically as TV. Like, He was just young enough that he grew up with TV being the pervasive, ubiquitous, influence in American culture that it, you know, that it has been for, you know, at least since the fifties. Whereas those rules of TV and like the rules that like the tonight show personified predate TV, like the rules for a variety show are sort of the same as the rules for any kind of stage show, like, uh, you know, um, the vaudeville or anything like that. It's, it's like a theater production, right? The Tonight Show is like, it, it wouldn't be that different if it wasn't being televised and it was just a show that, a celebrity show that was put on for the 300 people in the studio audience. Whereas what Letterman did was it, he understood all those rules and could just play with, dance within the lines. And to me, that's like what Tarantino does with all of his genre movies where he's internalized all of these movies And he makes his movies within the cracks of those lines. Now, I don't want to overstate Letterman's influence here. You can point to plenty of rule-breaking shows in the 70s and 80s, Monty Python's Flying Circus and Saturday Night Live being two great examples. But I'd argue that what made The Letterman Show more shocking was that it didn't look like an anarchic sketch comedy show. It looked like a talk show. We understood what talk shows were. And this is what made it much more subversive. David Letterman didn't invent irony, and he, he didn't even invent it on television. That, that was what SNL did in the 1970s. What was different about Letterman was that he just made it so much more uh, broadly humorous and, and accessible, uh, even, even though he, he famously you know, didn't smile or laugh at his own jokes uh, except to mock himself. Uh, Letterman uh, really was a lot easier to take than... Uh, you know, Mr. Mike or um, or Eddie Murphy uh, uh, or any any of the kind of, the, you know, edgier comics that graced the Saturday Night Live uh, arena. But but there's no doubt that the reception of SNL, whose creator, Lorne Michaels, also never wanted to be like Johnny Carson's show, um, that that really did set the stage for what he did. Andy Anatko writes about technology for the Chicago Sun-Times, among other places, and is one of the biggest David Letterman fans I know. It's been said very correctly that a lot of the things that he brought to late night had been done by Steve Allen before. The idea of we're going to go on the street, we're going to do, we're even going to be a suit of tea bags and dunked into a giant tank and make iced tea for everybody. Yes, Steve Allen did that. But the fact remains, though, that you, it's it's like looking at the the first Macintosh. It's like looking at the first iPhone. You can see here is what everything looked like before this one, before Letterman had his show, and then here's what everything looked like after he had his first season uh, of Late Night with David Letterman. And then you can't say that 
they were that in 1983, 1984, people were suddenly discovering Steve Allen and aping him. It really was Letterman who brought this into a modern sensibility. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of other things about going on in society at that time that uh, sort of begged for a skeptical, uh, you know, jaundiced eye uh, on uh, things that were big in the 70s. Uh, this was the Reagan era. This was the Thatcher era. era. Uh, and so you're sort of promoting the idea of let's just Let's just go with the assumption that if if the previous generation thought this was the coolest thing ever, maybe this maybe we can just sort of step back from it and and tear it apart a little bit. But again, people, everything changed after Letterman, and it wasn't because of a, a delayed fuse on the Steve Allen Tonight Show. All right, now I wish I could say that I got in on the ground floor of this one, but I didn't. I was nine years old when the morning show was on the air and 11 when Late Night with David Letterman premiered. Now, I have a distinct memory of first seeing Late Night in a hotel room in Pennsylvania. We were there for my mother's 25th high school reunion, and my parents were downstairs at the party late into the night. I fell asleep, I think, with the hotel room TV on. I woke up maybe when they were coming back from the party. I don't know. But there was this strange gap-toothed man who was definitely not Johnny Carson doing strange things on television. I did not understand it. It wasn't until about three years later, maybe 1985, when I began to understand the appeal of David Letterman. The thing is, I have no clear memory of how I went from not understanding him to taping his show every single night. But John Gruber's story is probably not too far off from mine. I'll tell you what. I remember, very, I have very vivid memories of this. Um, so I was born in 1973. And at some point in the 80s, there was a show hosted on – it was on NBC and it was hosted by Ed McMahon and Dick Clark. It was like Dick Clark and Ed McMahon's bloopers and practical jokes. And for whatever reason, it, it you know it passed the test in my household. I have a sister who's two years younger than me and my mom. We, were, we three would watch TV together at night because my dad worked third shift. So – and we all liked it. Um. And on this show, they would occasionally have bits from Late Night with David Letterman. They would just like some of the remote bits that he did. Um, would They would just show them uh, to fill space on the, the Dick Clark, Ed, Ed McMahon show, which I think in hindsight was like a crazy show, like just like filler, like before there was reality TV, before something like uh, – America's home funniest home videos or Tosh or something like that where, where they're showing user submitted footage. It was just like NBC had like an hour to fill and Dick Clark and Ed McMahon were happy to do it. And so they would fill it with Letterman bits sometimes, not every week, but every once in a while they'd have a bit from the Letterman show that would make sense at eight o'clock. And they were the best things in my opinion. And I remember one of them very specifically was – and and part of what made it great was that Letterman himself wasn't anywhere near as famous. He had his own twelve thirty talk show, but he he could go out in public and not be mobbed. And it was Letterman and a camera crew going around Manhattan to find diners. And every one of these places had a sign in the window that said "Best Coffee in New York." And it was just Letterman going in with a camera guy and telling them, "Hey, you know, there's a place two doors down down the street that says Best Coffee in New York." And people would either like. The reactions were all across the board. Like some people, like there'd be like a just like an old Greek guy who ran the place and he'd be like, No, my coffee's the best. Like he would be insistent. Like it wasn't just that he put the sign up, just you know, like instead of just saying hot coffee, they all there was just a thing. And Letterman made it hilarious. Um and that is it made me wanna desperately made me wanna watch uh his twelve thirty show, which has like an eleven to twelve year old was sort of a stretch. It would have had to have been after 1984 because that's when we got a VCR in our house. And um, I had seen, you know, the clips, the wacky stunts and the the, the thrill cam and uh, monkey cam. And and uh, uh, that that sort of jibed with my my sensibility at the time. And the first episode I remember taping, I believe the stunt that night was they were following the Australian Stock Exchange throughout the program and 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 so there was this ticker of australian stocks um uh like running throughout the program and occasionally paul schaefer they invested in the company and paul schaefer would occasionally scream oh god we're ruined whenever the the price dropped so i i remember that bit and you know that 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 worked for me i thought that was great i think ricardo multiban was the was the guest 
because they were asking him about uh, about Corinthian leather. Oh, it was that episode. That's something. I, I believe so. It went, and in which we learned that Corinthian uh, leather is totally made up. Yeah, yeah. It just sounds nice when Ricardo Montalban is saying it. Those bits um, really what what was so effective about them of course was that a generation could claim them as their own right stupid petrix and and um you know dave uh on the in the velcro suit and uh chris elliott and and uh biff henderson and larry bud melman right <laughs> And Larry Bud Melman handing out hot towels to arriving visitors at the Port Authority bus terminal. And showing amazingly bad microphone technique, which oh, I, I found so endearing. <laughs> yeah. How long have you been? <laughs> he was just priceless. I must have seen it before this one episode that sticks out in my mind. But the episode that really sticks out was the was one in which uh, – it's open. The opening shot is of the audience leaving the leaving the, the studio, and just a shot of Letterman in his office saying that, "Look, it's uh, at the door of his office saying it's just too hot to do a regular show." So we've we've sent the audience home, and they did the entire thing legit inside his office, where Paul Schaefer had his little, his little Casio little keyboard Casio keyboard on <laughs> his lap. They, was, Terry Gar was the guest, and he had he he had her like basically older brother little sister berated her into like taking a shower you know even even though like the shower doors had in his office covered up with towels so she couldn't see anything she clearly was like not interested in doing that but was just so <laughs> just just to get him to, to, to stop talking about it but this was the one that really made me into a letterman fan just realizing that my god this is nothing like anything i had seen on any other show all kinds of respect for for the carson show but it was a format that had been really locked in for at that it must be the early 80s mid 80s so this has been like at least two decades and they they don't tamper with that format the idea that you have a talk show where they would do something as wild as this just got just locked me into becoming a lifelong letterman fan i remember the first time i actually watched late night with the actual show and it was a similar type situation where i you know still wasn't allowed to stay up that late at home I was on a field trip to Washington D.C. with you know I you know was in a suburb suburb of Pennsylvania, so it was like a two. I think we had two overnights, or maybe it was just one overnight. I don't know, but we at least had like two night, or one or two nights in a hotel. And I was in sixth grade, so I must have been like twelve, around twelve. Um, and you know, like typical sixth graders, we were up, we were wired, you know, wide awake. And it got to be twelve thirty. I think we were watching HBO. I think I actually, I think I actually specifically remember the the HBO movie we watched. It was uh, a Chuck Norris Vietnam movie. I, what was that called? Uh, Prisoner of War or something? Or uh, miss, Missing in Action? Was Missing in Action? A, I think it was Missing in Action. It was an HBO movie. It was rated R, so it felt like we were already getting away with something. You know, a bunch of sixth grade boys in a hotel room. And then the 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 movie was over, and I realized, holy shit, it's twelve thirty. I can watch. Uh, we can watch uh, the Letterman show, and I've always wanted to watch it. And the show had already started. It must have been about ten minutes in, and uh, and my friends had ne they didn't even had never even heard of it. They didn't even know what it was. They they were you know more or less of the opinion that we should look for another Chuck Norris movie. Um, because we've got HBO, right? We're in this hotel room with HBO. So I flipped to NBC. And I remember exactly what was on. It was a monkey cam. They had a monkey strapped or a camera strapped to a monkey and he was running around the studio and they were, the footage was first person perspective from this monkey that they had set loose in the studio. And I thought it was amazing. I was like, this is the type of stuff I thought would be on this show. And my friends were like, what the hell is this Gruber? We got it. We're turning this off. And I'm like, no, no. And I thought it was, and they only gave, let me have like three or four minutes of it. And then it, they, they were like, this makes no sense. We're turning it off. We're switching. But I, it was a uh, monkey cam. First time the, the, like, I saw the monkey cam. I was, I was like, oh my God, I love this show. You know, like this is great. Or, or just like the idea that, a grown man says, you know what? What if we dropped a bunch of stuff off a building? Let's just do it. Let's just shoot that. 
you learned that there was stuff in the past, but he was he really did become the master of the taped segment. Um, and, and I think more so than anybody, I think he's he's you know, if he if he wasn't the original idea for it, he certainly was the person who um, who honed it and who mastered it. And of course, now that's all we think about with late night is that is the, like the video bits that are taped and that are not a guest sitting behind a, uh, a desk or even like a Carson moment at the desk uh, with Karnak or something like that. It's all Letterman's taped bits. Everybody does those now. So that and to be there when that happened was great. Oh, attaching a monkey to a camera and having it run through the studio keeps coming up. I remember distinctly that the first time the show tried this, it didn't work because they got a small monkey and the camera was too heavy. They had to get a bigger monkey. Eventually, they ended up with a chimp named Zippy. Anyway, the comedy bits are definitely what linger in the memory. An entire show done on an airplane. Chris Elliott's various characters, the guy under the seats, the suit of suet, elevator races in 30 Rock interrupting the Live at Five news set across the hall. But the core of the show, of any talk show, the interviews, those were subversive too, in their own way. You know, he didn't suffer fools, and that was really new on Late Night. That's the, that's the thing. Um, so t- for him to give you a look like you're just being an idiot now, right? I mean, he would m- make people embarrassed if they did something embarrassed in their life. He, he was like, okay, you're not going to actually walk onto my show and not pretend you didn't make this book where you know you're you're naked in it or whatever. Um, you, you know you you can't come here and pretend that this embarrassing thing that's been in the news didn't happen. I'm going to ask you about it, and I love that. You know, and it's uh you know when Billy Idol came or came out and he was just like doing this whole thing about how rock and roll and blah blah and <laughs> what he was, and Letterman's looking at him like you're just an absurd ass, basically. And then he says, he's, oh, yeah, drugs, blah, blah. And he's like, your parents must be very proud. <laughs> it's just really puts him, in, puts him in his place. But, you know, I like that, that you're, you're the host of a late night show. At that time, you think, well, yeah, here they are to promote their movie or their book or whatever. Book, doubtful, but a movie uh, or a TV show. And he just wasn't having it. So I, I loved that. And it, and it was just, it felt like fresh and anything can happen. Why are they allowing this to happen? And then that that um, uh, uh, really uh, uh, touches a button in the uh, the teenage anarchist mind that yeah we're getting away with something here that that a guy can put on an Alka Seltzer suit and uh, or uh, or a Velcro suit and and put that on TV and sometimes the even when the jokes fall flat as as they often did in the monologue it 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 had a whole um, sense that 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 someone had snuck into a studio and was doing a show and um, uh, the network people didn't quite understand it. And again, um, another great bit that I think really um, cemented that show with me was when uh, GE bought NBC and, and they brought the fruit basket and it just went disastrously uh, with the, with the GE handshake. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, 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 I would agree with your theory that um you want um, at at a certain age, you want to see TV that that doesn't feel like it should be TV. I think uh, for people who are younger than me and therefore um, awful, uh, Conan O'Brien uh, uh, did that with the 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 various bits that that were kind of confusing to me because I was an old man by the time Conan O'Brien hit his stride. Oh yes, Conan O'Brien. Now that name brings up a couple of different eras in which NBC managed to cause intense drama in the programming of late night television. Your a friend, your friend of yours, is taking over here next May. So, um, do you want to address this uh, question? Oh, yeah. Anything to address? Or? It's uh, it's uh, uh, no. I'm not angry. I'm not angry uh, at NBC about this. Right. Not angry at uh, Jay Leno about this. Not not angry uh, at you or the Tonight Show about this. I mean. Realistically, if it were not for you, I wouldn't wouldn't have a show, and you know I wouldn't have socks actually if it weren't for you. <laughs> and uh, now, if, if, if the network had come to me and they said, "Dave, mm-hmm. we'd like you to have this show," uh-huh. and then then a week later they said, "Dave, we don't want you to have the show," then you, you could be angry about right. that. Right. Uh, but uh, I have a show. Yes, you do. And and NBC can can do whatever they want with this show. So I was I was never. Never angry. Now, would I would I like to have the show? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny Carson retired in 1992, and NBC had a choice to make. Jay Leno had been Carson's permanent guest host for years, but Letterman had been his host in waiting for a decade. 
So who did NBC want on the air at 11.30? David Letterman worshipped Johnny Carson. The Tonight Show was his dream job. And NBC chose the other guy. A guy who had really come to prominence in large part to his appearances on Late Night with David Letterman. He was this treasure, this national treasure to millions of his fans who felt the the insult of Dave's being turned down for the Tonight Show gig and it being given to this schmo, Jay Leno, whose reputation had been just in the sewer until his good friend Dave pulled him up and said, Jay, I know you bombed hosting the Tonight Show for Johnny, but here, come on over and I'll, I'll have you do your, you know, what's your beef on my show. And and folks will love you. And uh, Jay was so uh, so grateful for this uh, favor that Dave did him that he uh, began stabbing him in the back. I remember um, liking Leno at one point when he was a regular guest on Letterman. He was a good Letterman guest. He was guest. a really good Letterman guest. In fact, I still um, – <laughs> When my I still quote uh, uh, a thing from one of the the Leno appearances. Whenever um, uh, uh, my wife Lisa, who, who podcast listeners may know, is uh, is is complaining about something, I'll, I'll it's the it's the so have we reached the what's your beef uh, part of the program, which is what he said to to Leno. And even when he was um, the guest host on the the Tonight Show. It was it was still pretty. Hey, this is neat because it's it's someone who's who's young and has a has a has a worldview not unlike our own. And and then he became the 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 host through, um, you know, machinations we weren't privy to at the time. But uh, it just seemed so middle of the road and um, and and watered down. And and over the years, you you just felt every last edge of, of Jay Leno being buffered off until he was a bowling ball, basically. I think the, the transition from Carson to Letterman would have been fine from Carson's point of view, because I one gets the, the impression from reading biographies to to the extent that Carson uh, he, he had a he had more of a, a bond with with Letterman, I think. But uh, uh, it would it's very hard to replace Carson and it it's very hard to, as Conan O'Brien found, it's very hard to uh, step into this 1130 time slot where you're entertaining my dad, who who has stayed awake through the evening news and just wants something not terribly threatening or challenging to, uh, to, to come on the air. Now, my feeling, about which I'll say more in a minute, is that we all dodged a bullet when NBC chose Jay Leno over David Letterman for The Tonight Show. But Aaron Barnhart pointed out to me that if we knew then what we know now about the composition of TV audiences, things might have actually turned out much differently, not just for Leno and Letterman, but maybe even for Johnny Carson. We don't know because demographics were not widely circulated in the 1980s. They were not even widely measured, really, until the 1990s. But the market research that NBC did internally showed that within a very short period of time, Younger people were preferring Letterman to Carson, and this was driving all kinds of advertising sales. And really, whether it was true on in public or not, there was a genuine business competition going on now between the 11:30 and 12:30 shows on NBC Late Night. And 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 this is the thing that people don't maybe don't always think about but had that kind of demographic research been done in 1990 1991 1992 the time when jay leno and his manager helen kushnick were making the big press for him to succeed johnny carson as the host of the tonight show what if dave's camp had been able to point to those sheets of demographics and the news media had access to that kind of research showing that among 18 to 34 year old male viewers dave was beating the pants off of both johnny and jay how how would late night history have been different if if that kind of data that we now take for granted uh had been widely circulating then uh, but that's not how it went 
Letterman went to CBS, which at the time was still licking its wounds from its attempt to launch the Pat Sajak show, yeah, the guy from Wheel of Fortune, against Johnny Carson. I remember the front page of the newspaper the day that David Letterman announced he was making the move. Here's a picture of David Letterman, and behind him is the CBS logo. The picture said it all. The classy Black Rock CBSI, uh, all in all in ivory. Yeah, yeah, it's iconic picture, and it was it was a great it was a great triumph. It was a great triumph for CBS. It really changed the fortunes of the network. In hindsight, I think it makes him it, it makes his career seem more accomplished because he was the first person to successfully create a, a rival to the Tonight Show, and I know that over the what I guess must have been at least 20 years where he and Leno were head to head. When he moved to CBS, he was going to uh, an organization that desperately wanted him and was really eager to make make it very clear how much they wanted them, wanted him. More than that, they were giving him ownership of the show. So at no point could the network say, you're doing it this way. We say we want you to do it that way. They can't fire him and replace him. They can cancel the show, but that's certainly something that the, they certainly understood at the time. CBS had nothing going on in late night, and here came David Letterman with the chance to be the hero. He could create an entirely new and hugely profitable business for CBS and do it while staying in New York, continuing to play the underdog, and righteously rage against NBC, and all the while doing a version of his old show in a new place. Instead of trying to be Johnny Carson under the eyes of some NBC executives with questionable judgment and itchy trigger fingers. Oh, I, I 1000% agree with that because, um, you know, it's it, look, even when Conan got the job, it's like, be careful what you wish for. And he always wanted to be in that chair. You don't want to be in that chair because you, you have to. There was only one Carson. And then after that, you either had to be Leno uh, and, and, and you couldn't have any sharp uh, edges. There was no right angles. And Letterman is all right angles. So it's like you're totally right. He got to stay in New York where he belongs and he, he got to be bitter and his, his stuff his stuff where he was made fun of NBC when he was on NBC was great. And even when he went to CBS, making fun of NBC was even better. So it definitely worked out for the best of for, for late night, I, I think. And who knows how it would have worked out in the long run. But he's on the record, I know, um, as having said that if he had gotten The Tonight Show, which he definitely wanted, his plan was definitely to you know keep it where it was, go out to Burbank uh, and more or less do The Tonight Show as it was known, like he would just be taking over and doing it. Um, you know, and he had guest hosted, um, uh, before and, you know, Jay Leno had guest. I mean, you know, more or less Jay Leno just turned his weekly guest hosting gig into what he did. And, you know, Letterman planned to do the same. It was like an institution that he just felt you couldn't, you, you couldn't mess with. Uh, Leonard was the perfect choice for the tonight show. Uh, Jimmy Fallon also the perfect choice for the tonight show, because this is the, comfort food part of a, the tonight show after after Carson it was never going to be the tonight show after that uh, Jerry Seinfeld had a very very smart thing to say and I think in Bill Carter's second book uh, about the second NBC late night crisis uh, saying that what, what none of us understood was that when Carson left the tonight show he took the tonight show with him and so this be, stopped becoming an iconic show and it started becoming the deliverer of ratings and the the golden arches that people would think of as a familiar and okay, this is a safe place to stop from 1130 to 1230 to do really innovative stuff. You're going to have to go to comedy central. You're going to have to go to CBS. You're even going to have to go to TBS because it's not going to happen between 1130 and 1230 at NBC. Now looking back, I can see why NBC gave the tonight show to Jay, Jay Leno. I really can. Dave had a, had an approach to television. It was a guerrilla approach. There was a take no prisoners quality to it. And despite the fact that he always wanted to be the next Johnny Carson, he was just never able to effectively suppress that. It was really part of his humor. It was part of his appeal. And um, and for better or for worse, it's it's what made him effective. But it it always meant that he wasn't going to get the CBS job, uh, that he wasn't going to get the NBC job. And it probably did mean he was a better personality to launch a late night talk show uh, franchise at another network, which, you know, is a tremendous 
legacy for him at CBS. As much as um, uh, Letterman sort of drew in, wasn't doing quite the late night stuff once he got the late show on CBS, he was still doing odd and unusual things like will it float and whatnot uh, uh, to where I, I don't think that would have gone over like a, a Led Zeppelin for uh, for the, the Tonight Show's audience of my parents who are easily confused. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. We have no right to feel any sense of ownership about that. But it did feel great to know that um, Letterman did not have to inherit his dad's show. He was able to create his own business and his own business being incredibly successful in and of itself. I think that I thought that was a great validation that uh, 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 Leno or uh Jimmy Fallon, they really do need to have that name brand on their show. They need to have that legacy uh, in order to have a successful show. They need to have that the power of that brand behind them. Whereas Letterman is his own brand. You know, he brings his own staff. He brings his own sensibility as a nominal editor in chief of his entire show. He takes his own sensibility with him. It, it's hard even to imagine the 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 kind of excitement. But but even then, you know, we were in a forty channel world with cable TV. But but most of what you saw on cable TV was reruns. In fact, the E channel at that moment was on a nightly basis showing an old Letterman repeat from his from his NBC late night days. Um, so there was still precious little original programming on TV, especially in late night. And so the idea that CBS was now going to also do a late night program to compete against Johnny Carson and that David Letterman was going to be hosting. I mean, my God, the world almost stopped on its axis for about an hour there. Letterman not getting the job and and going out and just being himself and being in New York, that was that's when you you create your followers and that's when you he really showed what a true genius he was and it clearly rubbed off on so many so many other people for for late night. To me, of course, there will never be anything quite as exciting. As, as seeing David Letterman take the stage for the first time at, at CBS and transform that, you know, rundown old theater into a, into a television shrine again and um, entertain America, but, but also um, entertain me. Doesn't it feel like a, almost like a victory or a graduation or something that in that moment of like, well, we knew it all along and now here it is. We knew it all along. Yes. When David Letterman took over at CBS, it really did feel like that. David Letterman got the 1130 time slot. He got to keep doing his show instead of moving to California to stand in for Johnny Carson. And the initial ratings were huge. It felt like validation after all those years of cult status. But the late show with David Letterman wasn't late night. It was something different. Something on a bigger stage, literally and figuratively. As some of you may know, uh, for the last year and a half, uh, I've, I've kind of been interested in uh, doing a show a little earlier than the one I'm doing now. And uh, that reality has come to pass uh, here today. From the Ed Sullivan Theater in New York City, it's The Late Show with David... So, we win. David Letterman is the new king of late night. Jay Leno is vanquished. All those people who love the guy under the seats and the suit of Alka-Seltzer and the GE handshake can declare victory, graduate from college, and get a real job. The end. Oh, but life goes on. <laughs> There's no such thing as the end of history. Letterman's victory was just the start of two decades at CBS, and the show was not the same. It's similar, but not the same. That being a big Broadway theater made Dave play big to play to that audience and in a way that the tiny little studio that late night was in, in Rockefeller center when he was on NBC, let him play small. And, and there is, there's a definite difference in Dave's on-air persona, both shows. I mean, he talks about it as being one show, like, and it, when, it, and, and in a sense it is, it's like two halves to the show though. There's the half that was when it was at 1230 at NBC in a tiny little studio. And then there's the modern half starting in 93 where it's the flagship 1130 CBS show in a big theater. And he definitely – his persona is – his personality is the same but his persona is different because he has to – you have to play to the room. 
Now, I tend to think of The Letterman Show a bit like John does. Two halves of a career, late night on one side, the late show on the other. But David Letterman's actually been doing The Late Show on CBS for 22 years. Late Night with David Letterman was only on the air for 11. That's a third of the total. The CBS years account for two-thirds of the output, which is why sometimes I think it's more accurate to think of Letterman's career in thirds. The first third were the crazy, innovative years at NBC, then the first decade or so at CBS, and finally, the long, slow fade. Now, let's take that middle section. It started with David number one in the ratings, but a few years in, The Late Show fell behind Jay Leno and really never caught back up. I had a talk with Don Olmeyer, the NBC executive, probably best known to people of this podcast as the guy who yanked Norm MacDonald off Weekend Update. I asked him, I said, this was after Leno had taken back the the lead in in late night ratings from from Letterman. and I said, how did you know it was Jay? I mean, how how Dave was dominating his time period. And here's what Olmeyer said. We had done some polling, and we found that the, the type of person who watches Johnny Carson typically watches four nights a week, which means, you know, at that point, they were watching Johnny and at least one guest host, because Johnny never did more than three nights um, in a week. Uh, so the typical Tonight Show viewer watched four nights. The typical late night viewer watched two nights a week. And what Olmeyer inferred from this was that Dave's personality was not sufficiently warm and um, relatable enough to, to engender nightly viewing. That, that his viewers, other than his super fans, most viewers, uh, a little Letterman went a long way. And so one of the, one of, that was one of the data points he used in deciding that, that Jay Leno, who by that point had really, fig, really gotten himself back in the good graces of the Tonight Show and, and had learned the routine, would be the better host for the long haul because people would tune into him night after night after night. And in fact, what happened to Dave's ratings in the 24 months after he signed on to CBS kind of bore that out. He rocketed to number one. He, I mean, that first sweeps he did in November, um, it was just off the charts. And then he went to L.A., and Johnny Carson, I think the news had already broken that Johnny Carson was going to make an appearance on that night's show. And he had 10 million people watching. 10 million people! Ten, you can't get 10 million people to watch a primetime show these days. It was off the charts. And then it started to turn. And there's still no one thing I can point to until about the spring of 1996. Um, He's already lost the lead in the ratings to to Leno. And there's there's some comments about is is Dave maybe not got too, too, you know, who's to blame for this? This is a part of the Letterman story that we don't talk about much. He lost the ratings lead. The show lost something creatively. Letterman himself talked about this in a recent interview with the New York Times when he said, and I'll quote, Before, I felt pretty confident in what we were up to because there was no competition to speak of whatsoever. In the beginning at CBS, we came out of the shoot going a million miles an hour. And then when that was all done, we just sort of said, really, can we go a million miles an hour again? And we tried and we couldn't. I think we had gone way down the road, maybe way down the wrong road. I don't know that we ever did get back the right way. It didn't start to settle down until it couldn't be more clear that Jay was the more popular show. And when we all realized that there's not much we can do here, you can't put toothpaste back in the tube. Then we started going our own way again. I think it was just inevitability. The guy in the race who spends more time looking over his shoulder, well, that's the mistake. For two years, I made that mistake. We ran out of steam. They, they, they had a plan, and they said in effect, and, and it didn't work. One of Aaron Barnhart's first major pieces was for the New York Observer about the Letterman show and what was going wrong. And what I did was I dissected an episode. And you may recall, I actually sat down and watched an episode with Rob Burnett in their studio. It's the only time I ever met Letterman. He came in and shook my hand and 
we stared awkwardly at each other and then he then he left. <laughs> I've had dreams like that. <laughs> like liter- literally I've had that dream where it's, where it's like, "Oh, David Letterman. Well, it, it, all right. <laughs> it is it's it's not easy being Dave and it's not easy being a fan of Dave. But Burnett and I sat down and watched an episode and and even there there were moments that you know, like Dave had a new new producer. Uh, new director, uh, his longtime director Hal Gurney, who had produced Jack Parr, um, had finally retired, and and uh, so this guy Jerry Foley had taken over. And Jerry had never really done a talk show, and they were there were these epic tapings w- that audience members would talk about, where Dave would bark at Jerry, and segments would be taped over and over, and and even on the episode that I had asked Rob Burnett to hand pick that we sat down and watched together, there was evidence of tension between Dave and the booth. So anyway, there was this, it all came to a head in this episode where, where some, some sketch involved a David Letterman dummy to be made a life-size dummy. And I, I forget what the sketch was, but after the joke was over and he was supposed to move on and do other jokes, he turned around for no reason or took a baseball bat and hit the David Letterman dummy in the head. And he kind of liked it. So he kept hitting it. Of course, Anton Fig, the drummer, goes every time he hits the... And at first, the audience laughs. And then, not so funny. And this goes on for like half a minute, and it's very awkward television. But Dave clearly... That self-loathing side could not be contained. It came out. It, it it has never really gone back in. That that David Letterman that uh, that made a name for himself in the 1980s um, turned out did not wear so well in the 1990s. And even though I think a lot of people came back to him and viewed him in a different way after his his heart surgery, um, after some of the heartfelt monologues he made, including his post-9-11. You know, this, and, 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 and we all age, so Dave's audience aged with him. There's two, two moments from 9-11 that I remember vividly on TV. I remember the morning of when it was happening live. And I just remember the telecast vividly. It was just astounding. And then the other thing I remember very specifically was the first Letterman episode afterwards. I don't know if it was a week. I don't know if it was two weeks. I forget exactly when. But within a week or two, it came back on. Do you remember this? Do you remember how it opened? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No music. It was just silence. And then Dave at his desk and... And he he killed it, right? It was just amazing. And it really, uh, it just gave me this sense like, you know what? We're going to be all right. Which brings us to the last third of the story. Letterman's not making headlines every day now. He's not leading Leno in the ratings. NBC tries not to repeat its disastrous handling of the Letterman-Leno thing and promises the Tonight Show to Conan O'Brien. In the end, this decision creates an even worse disaster as Conan replaces Leno and fairly soon thereafter, Leno replaces Conan. All the while, Letterman just keeps on cranking out shows. The show's format at this point is locked in. Dave has open heart surgery, but comes back. Someone plots to kidnap his young son. It's revealed that over the decades he's been having sex with young women on his staff. The show just keeps plowing on. New starlets, new politicians, new rock bands. They just keep rolling on. Time flows on and on. And we watch it all, or at least some of us do. Not me. As a diehard fan during the first third of David Letterman's career and a frequent viewer during the second, the final act of Letterman's career has passed almost like background noise for me. I might watch a few times a year. That's all. Every night I have, for as long as I can remember, taped Late Show with David Letterman. And this morning was the first time in probably a year that I've actually sat down and watched an episode of Late Show with David Letterman. And the case of Carson, uh, as is the case with Letterman right now, 
it would be silly if this person in late middle in, in middle age or late middle age were to try to reinvent himself when he they've got a machine that works perfectly at this point and to bolt a rear spoiler and an afterburner onto it like and turn it to something that looks like the batmobile but doesn't run like the batmobile that would be very very embarrassing occasionally i'll i'll be up at that hour and not what not watching sports. If I'm up at that hour, it's generally because I'm watching an old movie or I'm watching sports, but I'll flip by CBS and see him and oh, it's Dave Letterman. And, you know, it's, it's, I think we're, you and I are also not to be cranky old men, but it's not what it was in the old days, is it? It's not, uh, it's not young, uh, risk taking David Letterman. Instead, it's, it's David Letterman taking his, his victory lap. Or his, so his, he cannot pretend that he's a 40-year-old or a 35-year-old guy no. who is up and coming and wants to stick it to the man. He is a multi-multi-millionaire. He is the man. He is the man. And and you can't. And Johnny Carson was the man. And Johnny Carson could get away with it a little bit more because he would do jokes about how his wife took him to the cleaners at the divorce hearing or or how he's playing tennis or or all that. And that was never really part of Letterman's shtick. I like the fact that they have he he and his staff have gently sort of shifted his role. When he started off in that chair, he was the person who I'm going to have the remote microphone. I'm going to try to deliver a basket of fruit to NBC executives, and I'm going to batter through the barricades. I know they're going to throw me out, but I'm going to get great shots of them being jerks and me being calm and me trying to just do something nice like deliver this basket of fruit. Now he's in exactly the opposite role. A lot of the humor that they do is. He's 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 Uncle Grandpa. They're on the middle of the stage, and younger staffers come up, and he has no clue what's going on, you know. And they can actually even like be berating him because he is the establishment figure, and that's absolutely appropriate for him to be doing this kind of comedy uh, at, at this at this stage uh, in his life. It's absolutely ridiculous for him to try to be hip because he is the establishment at this point. Uh, it's you you can't pre- you can't pretend that he doesn't have tens of millions of dollars. You can't pretend that he is not both culturally and economically, one of the most successful people who has ever done that job. It's kind of ridiculous to want to have the exact same role in popular culture in your 60s that you had when you're in your 30s. It is so much more satisfying to realize that people, I'm, I'm delivering something that people count on every single day. It's not that I'm bringing something fresh and new every single night. It's that I'm delivering something that's absolutely reliable and that is the uh, that is the bedrock of simple craftsmanship and reliability. Letterman is that level of refinement. They he can do more by simply stepping out and saying four words than a lot of other late night comedians can do with material that they spend an entire week developing and rehearsing. I will give him this. Johnny Carson was square even when big portions of america thought he was hip or he was square america's idea of hip and david letterman his flavor lasted i think a lot longer than anyone including himself expected it to and then when he finally became hopelessly identified with dad uh he still um by that time he felt like well he was just a a good friend and and there were all these other choices that I could turn to and and so he just stuck around and it worked out okay for everybody uh, not least of all David Letterman so here's a true story from my life bear with me a few weeks ago my childhood home burned down nobody was hurt thank goodness but when people asked me how I felt about the loss I realized that I had mourned that place long before Nearly 18 years ago, my parents sold the place I grew up in, this 1860s-era farmhouse and assorted barns on 45 acres in the Northern California foothills. They used the money to retire. The people who bought it transformed it into one of the top wedding destinations in the region, if not the country. Went back to the old place twice, maybe 10 years ago and again a couple of years back. It had been completely transformed. Part of the outer portion of the house was unchanged, but the entire inside had been ripped out and replaced with guest rooms. A new building had been grafted onto the side of the old one. Trees and shrubs overgrew this lawn that I used to mow every week. My point is, when the place burned down, though I felt sad for the people who owned the place and that the structure itself is now gone, I'd already mourned the house I grew up in. It was gone the minute they ripped out the bedroom walls, tore up the ugly linoleum in the kitchen, stuck a pond in the backyard. 
You can't go home again, but you can get married there. This is how I feel about this last week with David Letterman. He is meaningful to me. His comedy and tone and sense of irony were immensely influential in my development as a writer and viewer and amateur joke teller. And it's sad to think that he won't be on the air anymore, though he certainly has served his time and deserves a happy retirement. But I don't watch the show anymore. I've been watching the past few weeks for old time's sake. It's been a lot of fun, but it's nostalgia now. A sentimental visit to a place that was once my home, but is already gone. I never stopped uh, stopped watching uh, watching Letterman, uh, and I'm actually starting not worried about what happens when he goes away, but realizing that this has been a he's his show has been a constant in my entire life, and it's always a little bit sad when a constant goes away, even if it's you know that day that. Um, you know, you, you sell your mom and dad's house because they're both gone, and now you can you're you're no longer going to be going back to this address that has been you know a big part of your life uh, all of your life. Uh, or even if it's just that they stop making a brand of soda that you really like, it's you you attach so much to these touchstones of your life that when it suddenly goes away, you don't feel like you're lost, but you realize that oh man, that's gonna be I'm gonna miss that. I'm gonna really miss that a lot. He's always he's my guy, so it's great to hear like um, Kimmel, who I love. Uh, come out flat out and say, look, I, I'm in this business because of Letterman and he, Letterman was the best. And of course, of course, Kimmel famous for not letting Leno have like do any of his, Hey, let's be friends thing. And Kimmel was having none of that. He, and, and in some ways he was more mad at Leno than Letterman was, uh, which is kind of funny. Letterman grew up with three TV channels or five TV channels. Johnny Carson grew up with, just a couple TV channels. He grew up mostly with radio. And the this generation of performers all grew up with television. And they grew up with lots of television choices. Uh, the, the closest analog would probably be Jimmy Kimmel, who did um, morning radio uh, before he made his way over to television, just as, as David Letterman was a weatherman in Indianapolis. But, um, you know, I think David Letterman will not happen again in the sense that his sensibilities are really formed around post-war America and the idea that television was this, this giant glowing presence in the center of the house that everybody gravitated to um, and what he did in the 1980s was positively daring he split that atom he said well actually there's going to be a late night talk show for mom and dad and then there's going to be one for the kids kids don't have to watch johnny's monologue anymore I used to tape Johnny Carson's monologue on a cassette tape recorder and play it back later because that was considered the kind of the hippest, funniest, most topical comedy anywhere. And now, you know, really going back to the dawn of the Internet era, which was a time of great expansion in cable TV offerings. This whole generation is just accustomed to, you know, laughs on demand, and 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 so it. Dave really is is like Johnny Carson in that he goes back to a time when all of this entertainment was was considered very very rare and and special, and so it it commanded top dollar and the entire nation sometimes seemed to be paying attention to what you said. And nowadays people sit around and pray that they're, you know, a joke that they tell goes viral or a bit on their show gets, uh, gets posted on social media. So I, I, I think with, with Dave going away, you know, it really is kind of the end of an era that started with um, Steve Allen and went through, Jack Parr, Johnny Carson, and and David Letterman. Say what you want about Carson and and like the rules he put Letterman under, but he did he 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 wanted to always be 
the top. He he and he was you know defensive enough and insecure enough that he would do little things to make sure nobody supplanted him. But he let Gary Shandling and Jay Leno and Joan Rivers and David Letterman host his show. But he gave them this platform. You know, he gave this younger generation of would-be successors this platform. And Letterman never did that for anybody. Like he never picked a twelve thirty host who was in any way a plausible replacement for himself. None, none of the people who've hosted the twelve thirty show after Letterman could ever have been considered for uh, the Letterman spot. And he never did guest hosts. And I always wondered that Letterman works too hard, that five shows a week is too many. And part of what made Carson seem fresh for so long was that he only did three shows a week for 40 weeks a year. If there's anything I wish that I could have seen maybe them try differently would maybe, maybe starting like 10 years ago, let somebody guest host every Monday right there from the, the, uh, you know, the Ed Sullivan theater and then have Letterman only do four shows a week. In my career as a critic, uh, I, two of the best things I ever got were I got letters from David Letterman, and um, that that was amazing because he's just he's just somebody who doesn't really do that that often. Um, and it, you know they came years apart, and but they were both in response to something that I wrote uh, about him. One was really just an appreciation uh, of how talented he was and how great the show was, uh, <clears throat> and then that was early on. And then the other one was. Uh, you know, when people had sort of forgot about him for a long time and, and he still had many, many years left. Uh, and I, and I did a thing like, Hey, I, I, I don't know why, like everybody's talking about the new flavor, whether it's Leno or whoever, but here's, here's the master. And, and I did this whole thing and he really, really appreciated it and sent me a letter. So I have both of those I actually framed one of them, <laughs> my first one. Cause I was like, what? Dave's career is almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? He, he never, thought that he was the equal of Johnny Carson. He always thought that Johnny was always funnier, better interviewer, more urbane, quicker minded, smoother, more gracious, uh, a, a talk show host than he could ever be. And yet at the same time, he wanted his job. And so he has done everything where if it's possible for him to emulate Johnny, he has done that. And everything else, he has done his own way. And and so now he's going to go out in his own way. I can't remember, you know, I, again, I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 when Letterman got on the air. So, I mean, any anywhere even vaguely close to having an adult mind and awareness of American culture, Letterman's been on. It doesn't feel, doesn't feel like America without him. So what happens to David Letterman now? Like I said, he's earned his retirement. When Carson signed off in 92, one of the last things he said was he hoped the audience would welcome him back if he ever came back with a project that he thought they'd like. He never came back. Cameos on The Letterman Show were the most that we ever got. So is Dave going to emulate his idol one more time? Maybe. But today is a very different media landscape than 1992. Jerry Seinfeld doesn't need to work, but he was able to create his web series, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, and do it at his own pace. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see Dave on the web somewhere doing stuff for the sheer fun of it with the burdens of 11.30 and Johnny Carson and The Tonight Show and the Ed Sullivan Theater removed forever. I'd love to see that. But if all we get is the more than 6,000 episodes he's produced over 33 years, I'll call it even. Thanks, Dave. From your pals. For the complete interviews with Andy Anatko, Aaron Barnhart, John Gruber, Philip Michaels, and Tim Goodman, go to theincomparable.com slash bonus track slash 247B. We'll see you next week. <laughs>